Is this thing even an Amiga anymore? All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Another new retro joystick? Gotta catch them all, officer. Why Wi-Fi your Game Boy? Motorola? He hardly knew her. The Duke comes to the Amiga. All this and more coming up on today's show. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. So, Chris, before we get into this week's stories, have you noticed just the sheer number of magazines that cater to our retro hobby that have been on the market recently? Have you seen them? Yeah. Yeah. No, have, you, have you have you subscribed to any of them or do you do you collect any of them? I have a mega addict, um, and I may have written something for one of the issues. Um and I oh, okay. occasionally pick up retro gamer. Um it's quite hard to get hold of over here in Australia, so I tend to just pick up a special. Um, you know, special edition tends to be what we find in the shops. Um other than that, no, not too many. Just out of interest, how much does a copy of Retro Gamer cost you in the shop over there? I don't know what I can't even remember. It's that long since I picked one up. And in fact, the one that I've grabbed here, which is um, got a special on the Amiga 500, I bought off eBay. I find it quite funny that I'm already searching eBay for retro copies of a retro gamer magazine. Um, but I think generally they're about $14, something like that. So yeah, around what's... just over twice what you'd pay for them in the UK. Oh, double the price. Okay, so you do pay quite yeah. a hefty premium. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm going off on a wild tangent here, but did that follow through back in the day when you were buying like your Amiga games? Did you have to? Was there a premium on the cost of getting them over to Australia, or was it was it pretty fair over there for you? Well, keeping in mind, I grew up in the UK. Oh, Neil. Yes, of course. I keep forgetting. I keep forgetting. But you talk to people That's over all there. That's all good. <laughs> I think, I mean, looking at the prices, because often when you buy used games, the, the stickers are already on them. And it does look to be, again, about double what we would have paid for them wow. back in the day um, in the UK. In terms of, when I say that, double the, the pounds to get the Australian dollar value. So, that that kind of makes them on par. So so people would have been, you know, um, shops would have been uh, importing them in bulk. Um, so I don't think they got hit too much with the cost. But buying yeah. them now is another story, and you just have to, unless you find the game you're after local, international postage is part of the price you pay. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, if there are any uh, Aussie listeners out there who were buying games back in the day over there who want to elaborate on that answer, please do let us know because I'd love to learn more. Um, but just back on the subject of magazines, I've noticed loads. Ret- retro Gamer came out 2005, so that's that's the the granddaddy of the retro magazines, I guess, at the moment, and that's still going strong. But we've had others from Fusion Publishing. We had the likes of um, Crash and Zap, uh, those classic names now fall under fusion publishing uh, amtix as well they've been doing and their own fusion magazine um and you mentioned amiga addict which you've written for and uh, from the same stable comes uh, i've got a copy here of pixel addict which landed on my doormat and uh, this is an interesting one because while it does have reviews uh, hardware and software reviews it kind of styles itself as more of a lifestyle magazine i think that's what they're going for on the front, we've got the old Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, their history, rivalry, and battle to reign supreme. And um, there's some interesting... Um, I should give full disclosure here, by the way. While I haven't written for it, I'm aware of it because producer Duncan has done some articles for it, uh, including one on the cave. <laughs> so thank you very much for that, Duncan. I wasn't expecting oh, that. Good. That's really, really good of you. Um 
But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting the different approach that they've taken. They've got some nice interviews with, uh, we've got Jason Fitzpatrick from the Center for Computing History. Uh, you've got Zypho, who's a, a popular Amstrad streamer um, over on Twitch and YouTube. Really nice article on Teletext. I'm starting to sound like an advert here, and I've got to say I'm absolutely <laughs> not. Um, I, I, I'm just interested in the different approach that this particular magazine has taken. And um it's worth a look it's worth a look pixel addict uh, if good. only for the writing skills of producer duncan <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so duncan's written for a full-size magazine neil i've written for a meager addict only the once that's full size have you written for a full-size magazine neil <laughs> i've written for fusion but um format wise that's sort of like an a5 magazine so i've written for a small mag i haven't written for a i haven't written for a full-size size matters neil size matters it does (laughs) (laughs) well we could talk about magazines all day um do you know what let's not move on let's talk about magazines all day mine back (laughs) in the day was amiga format amiga format all day what was yours chris yep yeah absolutely amiga format well before that sinclair user or your sinclair one of them had a bear as a mascot i forget which one was which um but essentially it was whichever one had the best cover tape (laughs) stuck to the cover um, but once I went over to the Amiga, I, I think I was I was fairly loyal to Amiga format. They seem to be fairly good if you're into games, um, and and the cover discs were always good. But I do remember jumping occasionally, again depending on what you got with the magazine. And there was a Zero magazine came with an F29 mission disc, um, which was well that worth was, having. Um, that was a multi format magazine, wasn't it? Zero. Yes, yeah, yeah that's I right. That yeah, um, and yeah, and they had a special a special mission disc for F twenty nine Retaliator, which was good. Um, and I, I, do you know what? I can't remember the name of it, and I can't find anything about it online. Uh, and I don't think it did very well. But towards the end of my Amiga ownership, there was a magazine that was touted as a magazine on a disc. So essentially, you had two discs. You had a couple of printed pages, which were literally just a handful of adverts to help you know subsidize the magazine. And both the free program, so what you would have got on a cover disc, and the articles and reviews of games were both on disc. So to read the magazine, you had to put it into your Amiga to read it. I really wish I could remember what it was called. But yeah, that was now you mention it as well. I absolutely, I absolutely remember that. Now you mention it, I I can't remember for the life of me what the name of it was. I think I only ever saw like (laughs) I think I only ever saw it like twice in W. H. Smith, and then it vanished. Uh, but it, it was yeah. an interesting thing. And it, if yeah. it had been successful, it would have probably quite naturally moved into the CD-ROM format and they could have got a huge amount of content mm. on the CD for people yeah. to enjoy. Um, yeah. But, you know, we, we weren't at the, the point of e-ink and uh, high-resolution displays that we could enjoy staring at for text for long periods of time, really, were we? Um, I was reading this thing on my TV, Neil. <laughs> yeah, TV, or sometimes these things would put ham mode on on the Amiga, which was just like a, a flickery nightmare. Um, yeah, but they tried. They tried. Yeah, if anyone can mm. remember the name of that magazine, please do, do let us know. Um, maybe we can trawlarchive.org to download some copies and, and have a read, and uh, might be something worth covering in a future show. Mm. Anyway, Pixel Addict, check it out. On with the show, Chris. 
Well, we haven't chatted about retro joysticks for a while, have we, Neil? Oh, at least a week, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you might be right there, actually. <laughs> but anyway, look, it links in nicely with the community question of the week, so I'm going to run with it, all right? Hmm. Um, Reddit user Protech438 posted a link to the Unithor, I think I'm pronouncing that right, which is a retro-styled, well, let's call it a grip-style joystick or like a flight stick. Um, rather than the sort of arcade ball style. Um, uh, so it's a retro-style joystick, um, which is apparently in the works. And he comments it's definitely a nice change to the ball-type arcade joysticks. Um, and I have mm -hmm. to agree, Neil, after clicking on the link, this thing to me looks nice. It's more a retro style than a recreation, um, but it still reminds me of some of the nicer Quick Joy offerings, um, but with a bit of a modern twist. Think about things like the Quick Joy Jet Fighter definitely springs to mind, as does the um, the Superboard. Uh, but reading the web page, it's opening to Kickstarter soon, um, so I assume the images I'm seeing are maybe concept renders. I'm not sure if there's a photo. There might be. Um, it looks like it comes in either DB9, so you can plug it into your retro computers, so DB9 connector, um, including, wait for it, Neil, support for up to two fire buttons, Whoa. That's that's two fire buttons, Neil. Okay. Um, but it also says that it will come in a USP, uh, sorry, a USB variant. A uh, bit of a shame that maybe they haven't shoehorned those both into the same one so that you don't have to buy two. But anyway, that's the way I read the webpage. They're, they're two separate joysticks. And they're promising a variety of customization options, including glowing lights and, and changing of colors and that kind of thing. Uh, it kind of looks like something out of Tron, uh, but but with more taste, if I can put it that way. This thing looks like my bag, Neil, if I can put it that way. Have you taken a look? What do you think? I've had a look. I've had a look. Um, reminds me, I've got a few joysticks on the table in front of me here. And uh, at first sight, it reminds me of, I've got here the Quick Shot 2, um, which is kind of that flight stick grippy style look. Um a lot of people will be... Oh, you've got one. Chris is holding one it's up as if, too. It's as if so, we both. <laughs> <laughs> so quick shot two, and it also says Spectra Video. Some people may know it as the Spectra Video with auto yeah. fire option. Um, it reminds me of that, like you say, in a Tron style with these LEDs added. It's got LEDs in the buttons and underneath, so it kind of makes it look like it's hovering on the desk. Um, it's clicky. It's got a wide base. Uh, it makes no disguise on the website that it's a prototype. You know, it, it feels like to date it's just something these guys have been having fun with um, to just to come up with a stick. And now they've got to the point where they've said, if, if other people are interested, then we'll kickstart it. We'll make that happen, which, which is nice. Um, I just read a quote from the website, which helps to put it into some context better. So they say, we're retro computing enthusiasts who simply ran out of joysticks. And so we've decided to develop a modern controller for computers and consoles from the era. The idea was that it wouldn't just fit retro machines design-wise. It was equally important that it was better and more wear-resistant than its long-gone or ailing predecessors. At first, we meant to build it just for ourselves, but with the encouraging feedback we got, we thought, hey, why not share it with other gamers? So that's their side of the story. Seems like their plan is to kickstart it at some point. This isn't a live Kickstarter yet. And, um, well, they're just feeling it out. Is that, is that the impression you get, Chris? Yeah, that's that's the impression I got, Neil. Um, 
This style, though, definitely was my go-to for Amiga flight sims. I know that was something you were into um, until I had. I just simply had to get an analog stick eventually, which, I mean, they were incredibly expensive for the Amiga. I don't know if you remember. And the only one I could have afford was the Voltmace Delta, I'm pretty sure, was the one I got. Um, think of trying to play a flight sim with a spoon in a yogurt tub, and that's essentially <laughs> the kind of style joystick that was. Um, uh, but it was good enough for flying through turbulence in F19, and that was all I was. That, that's the only thing I was after at, at that point in the game. Um, but so yeah, I really did like back in the day for my Amiga. I favoured those, you know, sort of flight stick like uh, joysticks even though they weren't great um, but most of them the buttons the fire buttons are only on the top of the stick you know front and top and so if you then want to swap to playing some shoot 'em ups um, like swive or hybris or that kind of thing that's actually quite awkward um, I guess that's what auto fire is for but if you're trying to play it legit um, you, you got to have some <laughs> buttons on the base to bash um, in, in my view and from memory, I mean, I'm sure there there were more, but the ones that spring to mind are the Cheetah One Two Five. Not a great joystick, but it had two buttons on the base that you could bash, um, and also the Quick Joy Superboard was was the same. It had actually four buttons on the base, even though they were both again flight style joysticks. So, so for me, you've said some words. I'm just going to go and grab something. Carry on. <laughs> oh yeah, great. Yeah yeah. Oh, what have you got there? I'm back. Another Sorry, example. Just... You said Quick Joy Superboard, and oh, this thing is Neil. a beast. Is that the one, Neil? I'm gonna uh, look. I'm gonna. <laughs> you know how you set up CCTV in the cave, you know, in case <laughs> when people visit, things go missing. You've got a boxed zip stick, and you've got a box Quick Joy Superboard. If I ever well, visit England and those go missing <laughs> at the same time, it's pure coincidence. <laughs> Yeah, if if you're not familiar with the superboard, uh, or if you're just listening, it, it's like a, an oversized joystick with this ridiculous thing on the front, which is a looks like a digital clock. And what that is yes. is a timer, so, so you can set the time and then you can press start, and it will count down uh, for whatever reason. I, I don't know. Maybe you're sharing turns with your sibling, and you're gonna have five minutes each on the joystick. I don't know, but um, that's what the superboard is all about. I, I never knew anyone who had that one back in the day. Me, um, I had one. You you had one, so now I do. <laughs> I, I, I had one. Um, and look, what I like about that, um, and for, for the viewers at home, other than the timeout, which was completely um, useless, um, <laughs> the, it, it, it had, you know, the traditional uh, fire buttons on the front and top, uh, but it also had four very bashable fire buttons on the base as well. So if you did feel like swapping to a, a fast-paced shoot-em-up, you could quite easily, you know, smack away, um, either for the left or right-handed, and and it did both jobs well. And I think there were very few joysticks that did that back then. Um, yeah. It was Micro Switch, wasn't it, Neil? And it, it did suffer those snapping springs that most of the Quick Joy Micro well, Switch joysticks. Well, yes. Had. So um, a, a, a problem of physics came into play when we use these old joysticks uh, because the the longer the shaft, the more stress is going to be put on the bottom of the stick when you start, you know, playing your shoot 'em ups, your fast paced shoot 'em ups, and I'm that's in a straight face. On I, that I know it's difficult, but. <laughs> That's why I I snapped so many joysticks back in the day. Uh, they just, uh, you know, the classic one everyone talks about is Daily Thompson's Decathlon and all of those joystick wagglers. But it, it could yeah. happen on any game if you were if you were fast and furious in your gameplay, uh, which is why I quickly transferred to such sticks as this. I've got here in front of me a Conix Speed King. I don't know if you ever had the Ooh. Speed King. Um, I saw I, it, but I didn't have it. 
I didn't have this. I had the Conix Navigator, which was a very similar handheld uh, stick with a much shorter... Um, uh, there's no other word for it. A much shorter shaft. Um, and then the popular one, this is the one you were talking about earlier, was the Zip Stick. Um, oh, yes. I, I think I talked about this last week, how I, I've i reached a, the point of obsession in my collecting where I spent, I think it was seven or eight pounds on just the box for this on eBay last week. <laughs> and I've reunited the joystick with the box. Well, there it is. Um, yeah. But the the thing about these flight style sticks that were digital was um, it was fine at the time. A lot of the Amiga games, they would just assume that you had a digital stick. Some, some of them didn't support analog whatsoever. And that's just the mm. way it was. But then when uh, people started throwing more money at their PCs and these more complex flight sims came out, um, what we all dreamed of, Oh, was the likes of this absolute monster here. This is Ooh. the Thrustmaster F22 Pro. And that's just half of the stick because you also had the uh, the hot-ass um, throttle next to it. Uh, and if you went really overboard, you had the pedals as well. So you had the full setup. Uh, this thing oh. weighs an absolute ton. Uh, I've actually converted it to USB, so it still works in the modern day. Um, nice. But you can still get sort of the equivalent of this by Thrustmaster. They're still making sticks like this. The A10 Warthog is an example. And you're looking at 400 or so pounds uh, plus for that kind of joystick. So joysticks got really serious and they remain really serious. You know, if you're into your flight sims, there's no way you're playing your flight sim with a, with a quick shot too these days. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the one that I like to use at home these days is... Um, called the ch fighter stick usb and that will be instantly recognizable to anyone who looks at it and, and remembers the classic ch um, flight stick back in the 90s it still looks exactly the same uh and it's it's feather light that's what i like about it the the Thrustmaster, you're really fighting with it this one's great um, and a game i've been playing recently is comanche 4 comanche 4 which is um you know the helicopter series uh it came out in 2001 so it's it's a retro game but it's on steam so i can play it easily um on my modern computer so that's what i've been playing lately with my uh my ch flight stick um and one i'm trying to track down boxed at the moment for the collection because the reason i've got all these boxed ones is because i want to make a, a cabinet display of joysticks because they evoke such emotions in people when they see these things especially boxed because that went straight in the bin normally um so i'm trying to get a hold of a nice example of a microsoft sidewinder do you remember when those first appeared um yeah i do in the yeah, stores yeah they they had these yep. kind of force feedback displays where you could press a button for the different to experience the different types of feedback that it could do uh, and you would sort of hold the joystick in the shop and press a button and it would rattle away in your hand um even better. If I could get hold of one of those displays, that would be brilliant. <laughs> oh, that would be great. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, um, yeah. going back to this particular joystick, which was the, um, what was the name of it now? The something Thor, the Unithor. Yeah, the That's Unithor. Um, yeah, I'm certainly watching it with interest. Do you think you'll back this one, Chris? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm the same. I'm certainly watching it with interest. Um, I'll be honest, uh, unless it's a proven name selling a, a, something like a colouring book, I'm actually <laughs> not one to jump on Kickstarter. Um, no. And look, I, I do realise I'm starting to miss out on things, the Spectrum Next being one of them. Um, so I may change my mind on, on that at some point. But I definitely think this is one that I will watch and see how it pans out in the hope that there's a second chance to grab one via other means if it's a success. Um mm -hmm. If it has fire buttons on the base, like I suggested, 
And if they can squeeze DB9 and USB support in a single joystick, um, then I'll definitely be interested. I don't ask for much, Neil. Hmm. Our next story this week is a story submitted by Starcade2084 over on the subreddit. Thank you for that. And it's a story of obsession. You'll remember the excitement that surrounded Pokemon Go. Even if you didn't play it, you will certainly remember the, the buzz in the media and the excitement around it. It was an augmented reality mobile app that took the classic Pokemon collecting gameplay of old and laid it onto the real world. Well, it turns out in 2017, although this has just come out, in 2017, two police officers were big fans of the app. So much so that officers Lozano and Mitchell who were patrolling LA, they sound like good partner names, Lozano and Mitchell on the streets of LA. Uh, they were patrolling this is a TV LA. show, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they failed to respond to a robbery in progress shout because they were busy trying to catch Snorlax on 46th Street. Yeah. And uh, embarrassingly, it was all captured on the patrol car's monitoring system. The hunt was concluded when Officer Mitchell ex- exclaimed, holy crap, Finally, the guys are going to be so jealous. <laughs> they got their Snorlax. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so they were eventually dismissed. Um, for the listeners, dismissed. I just face-palmed. <laughs> <laughs> they were eventually dismissed for gross negligence, cowardice, lack of thoughtfulness, and deceit by the LAPD Board of Rights. And, um, well, I'm going to say quite right, too. I can't really argue with that. No. Um, no, so I'm certainly not going to start making excuses for their behavior, but it reflects in the extreme in this example, the uh, collision of addictive gaming, which is nothing new, let's be honest, from the birth of video gaming. It's all about being addicted to the game and coming back for just another go. Combining that with portable platforms uh, and platforms that you might never, ever truly switch off from. So let's talk about that, Chris. We're old school gamers. We've been addicted to many games, I'm sure, over the years. Did the transition, not to mobile phones with Snake on and all of that, but to the more recent generation, I guess, of mobile phones with 3 or 4G connectivity, did that result in addictive behavior, game or otherwise, for you of any kind? Oh, absolutely, Neil. Um, I mean, they're the obvious ones like, you know, the Facebook scroll of doom. Um, I've actually removed Facebook from my phone for that reason. Uh, but I find the compulsion is then just replaced with checking email or checking the news or, or whatever. Um, it's a really hard habit to get hold of. That moment when you realize that your phone is once again in your hand and you can't even remember how or why it got there. <laughs> um, but as far as mobile gaming mm-hmm. goes, Neil, let me tell you about the game that Niandic created before they created Pokemon. Um, have you heard of Ingress, okay. Neil? I haven't. No, no. Tell me about it. Okay, so Ingress essentially was it was almost them doing uh, the test run, if you like, for what became Pokemon Go. And in fact, in some ways, the players of Ingress were helping to develop Pokemon Go because all those things that you will know as Pokestops or gyms or whatever they're called in that flipping game. Um, They were portals in the game Ingress and they were submitted by the players. So if you found a point of interest out in your local area or whatever, you took a photo of it, you wrote a description, you submitted it via the game as a portal. And lots of people were into submitting portals, especially if they were in a hard-to-reach place because that was to your advantage as a player of the game or especially if it was within um, GPS reach of, let's say, your desk on a 
fourth floor office. Not that I ever did that. Um, because it was, it was again, really to your advantage to have a portal close to your, um, you know, to, to wherever you were going to spend a lot of time. Um, Ingress, how do I describe Ingress? Essentially, you're basically playing against other people in your area. There are two teams, a green one called the Enlightened and a blue one called the Resistance, and you fought for territory in your area. That was essentially the, the main premise of the game, and you gained territory by joining portals together in a triangle. That became a field, um, and then the bigger the field, the, the quicker it would spawn things that you could collect, and especially weapons, because you use weapons to take out enemy portals goes on and on and on um and 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 it was just huge neil it was just i was so addicted to it to the point that i would be driving out at 10 o'clock at night literally just saying to the wife i'm just popping out to smash a portal and it's, it's 10 p.m i have no reason to go and take a 20 minute drive in my car other than to smash an enemy portal <laughs> in ingress um obsessing over my local nemesis because you did get to kind of know other players um and it was actually became quite creepy how easy it was to figure out who was a player and who wasn't um and and that actually causing you know the state of play in my area and this nemesis that i had that would always smash up my work because it took a lot of time investment actually to set up your fields well and then having them smashed by somebody who may or may not have been a bus driver playing behind the wheel um that, that was actually then causing me sleepless nights. So I think Ingress is the only game that I've ever had to decide to go cold turkey on, Neil. What about yourself? Yeah, the first game that springs to mind for me was when I first got BlackBerry. It was a company-issued BlackBerry, and it came as standard with this um, poker game on there. Uh, you, I don't think you could play for real money on it. I certainly never did. But even so, it was really, really addictive because it was it was online. It linked up with other players. Um, so that was probably one of the first experiences of a, a properly massively multiplayer game on a mobile device that I ever had. And um, yeah, like you, you start, the more you play it, the more you recognize those other names and you develop these nemesis or nemesi in your head. You probably don't even know you exist. Uh, you, you know, they probably don't give you a second thought, but every, you see that name coming up. And you just have to beat them. Um, but then moving on from games, you talked about the the Facebook wall um, and how you had to remove Facebook. Uh, yeah, I, I can completely relate to that. The, the idea that sometimes you're holding your phone and you're like, why did I pick this up? And you'll check the news and you'll check your email and you'll do a couple of other things. And then the cycle starts again. I'm checking the news again. I mean, I checked it 30 seconds ago, but I'm checking it again. And you just, oh, it's, yeah. it's a horrible loop that you it, sometimes you just have to take the phone away, put it in a box and walk away from it to, to give yourself a break from it. Yeah. Um, and doubly so as, as a YouTuber, you know, I have to keep an eye on my social media, respond to people, um, uh, comments on YouTube and things like that. So it's, uh, it's not something I can completely give up. Um, and it has become an addiction of sorts. I will admit that, um, it, it's hard <laughs> to find the balance, but, uh, gaming addictions in, in the retro sense, let's just go back to the, to the old school, back to the vintage um chris what games uh back in the day have really hooked you can you think of any hooked well oddly i didn't see it as that growing up funnily enough um i don't think it's true of any arcade racer although that said uh many of my school books um definitely had hand-drawn ferrari testarossas on many of the pages and it was always the back view 
funny that. Um, hmm. I loved my flight sims, yes, but that flowed into uh, more healthy activities away from the computer, like reading up on aviation and going to air shows and making model aircraft and flying a plane at Biggin Hill where maybe I threw up and also <laughs> doing aerobatics over Jandicott here in Perth where maybe I threw up again. Um, but anyway... Games I would obsess over um, and be drawing maps of in class rather than doing my actual schoolwork would include games like Mercenary and Captive. Um, and I think that's just the nature of those games. There's so many areas to explore, so many things you had to achieve. So I found those games really occupied my headspace uh, when I wasn't sitting at the Amiga actually playing them. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Um, games that continue to be played when you walk away and you're just constantly thinking about well, have i been to that area have i been to that part of the map waiting for the penny to drop to get you past the next bit I, I quite like that um that's it what i don't like in my own nature is that i'm a bit of a completionist so over the years um i've got to this i've got to learn this habit about myself to the point where i'm quite careful and i, I try not to get sucked into new games that that might um trigger some of those behaviors um you know if the game has a main mission and side quests yeah i want to be doing all of those side quests i want that progress bar to pop up and reward me and say 100 percent of this game has been completed you know i'm really easily caught up in it the whole reward system uh, i remember when the xbox when i first got an xbox and it started doing achievements and unlocking things oh it was it was just ticket you know pushing all my buttons it's a terrible thing. And I think the absolute worst genre for me is car racing games for addictiveness because if I really get into one, there's there's absolutely no end to the rabbit hole in it. You know, the goal of car racing game is the fastest time around the track. So I can get absolute tunnel vision of just shaving uh, millisecond after millisecond off each lap to try and get the fastest lap time. And it, it's not something I'm proud of. I just have to admit it unashamedly to friends, I think. And the worst example for that, for me, um, there was a game called R Factor, which I got obsessed with around 2007. I don't know if that's one you've ever played, Chris. Um, but it's it's a racing game or, or sim. It's more of a sim where every centimeter of the track seemed to count. It really did. It was ultra realistic. I think there's a sequel mm. now. It's still going, which I refuse to touch for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, your tire temperature would change according to how you drive. Your car setup could be tweaked within an inch of its life. I got totally, totally hooked on that. Before that, it was Project Gotham Racing 3 on the Xbox 360. Uh, I managed to be the second fastest in the world on uh, one of the Ooh. tracks on that game uh, at one point. Uh, and then before that, it goes back to uh, IndyCar Racing, NASCAR, Jeff Grammon's F1 GP. You know, I know full well now to avoid those games if I want to remain productive. I'll still dip in and enjoy them once in a while, but I just I just know the effect it will have on me if I get hooked on them. So um yeah, those are the ones I have to avoid. Yeah. Um yeah. any any similar stories from your side? Any obsessions or behaviors that you you know you have to be aware of? <laughs> well, I just want to say first, Neil, second fastest in the world, I Neil. Know. I'm 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 I'm, I'm <laughs> I'm seeing a clip from Father Ted where he's told he's only the second best priest. Um, and it goes round and round in his head. So I think you've got to go back, Neil, and, and make sure you're more than the second best priest. No, 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 no. I, I know I know how badly that affected me. I, I tried for weeks to get the number one spot and I just couldn't. 
The closest I've been to that is actually on Battlezone on the PS4. There's um, you can see the scores every time in classic mode. So you go back to the wireframe version, um, and I have mm-hmm. I've, I've probably like three hundredth or something way down the, the the leaderboard, but it's still. Oh, I'm sure I can get further up. But anyway, uh, it hasn't become an obsession yet. Obsessions. I mean, I'm a completionist as well, um, and on shooters, for example, like you know Doom and Quake and that kind of thing, I feel the game is best played on the hardest setting unless that's one that respawns everything um and you haven't completed it until you've finished all the maps on the hardest setting but if it's story driven Mm -hmm. um then i tend to go the other way now i tend to um for things like say the bioshock trilogy for example which i really enjoyed i'm happy with a lower setting not too easy but then i can enjoy the action and the story, and there's there's something to be said for that. I think um, I definitely share your love of driving games, uh, and as well, um, I ended up yeah, using them as a practice during my PS3 Gran Turismo days because I had a 350Z uh, in real life. Um, nice. So I basically set up a 350Z in the game to as close as I could get it to, to my real life car, and and um, yeah, just practiced ready for track days it was sort of this um realization that i now had real cars and i could go on a real track rather than just doing it at the computer all the time which was good but yeah. i can't say i've been obsessed in recent times though other than english um ingress sorry ingress, which we've yeah. already no wait a minute there's another there is another one there go is on. another confession and it's another game i had to quit cold turkey i can't believe i forgot about this Fortnite. Ah, did you okay. did you play Fortnite, Neil? I I okay. So I was really hooked on a game called H one Z one or H one Z one, which was like a zombie survival oh. game. Um, played that for probably the best part of a year. We had a little group of friends who would get together. We'd use it as much as a social gathering as a game. We'd you know chat about our day while we built our base and all of that stuff, fighting off the zombies, fighting off other clans. Um, lots of funny stories and, and good memories from just silly things that happened either because of uh, planned raids or silly physics in the game that went wrong and just crazy things that happened. Loads of great memories of that. But when we got to the end of that that sort of period and said, okay, it's time for a new game, uh, That's and I've done this a few times in gaming, that's when I stepped back and said, no, I don't want a new obsession. And that that new game that they all wanted to move to was Fortnite. And um, I took one look at it and thought, no, I can see exactly where this will go. I'm going to skip this one. (laughs) So I didn't. What did I miss out on in Fortnite? Uh, No, nothing. You were very wise. What you missed (laughs) out on was... Well, look, it's just a very clever game. I mean, of course it is. They, they've made so much money from it, and it seems to have really put Epic on the map. Not that they weren't already, but... um, just the way the game is put together, the sounds that it makes when you shoot at the, the other players, the scores popping up from their heads that you can see, you know, how many hit points you're taking off them, the rewards that you get in the game, the sound the chests make when you open them up to pick up some weapons, the fact that the map is ever-changing and it goes through seasons, um, the feeling of achievement despite being hopeless at the game, which was me, although I did win only a couple of rounds, you know, becoming the last player to standing. Um, but the fact that you had to follow the storm into the centre of the map, you, you could survive for about an hour's worth of play without really achieving much, and that felt good. Um, the whole game, the, the, the colours, hmm. the 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 comic book style the whole thing looks like a drug neil i don't know what it is about it but that it's just addictive <laughs> throughout um 
But it was when I got into trying to hit the daily and they were daily achievements you had to hit to basically get your next season pass. That's when I realized that this was no longer something that I was doing to relax after work. This was work outside of work. So that was enough for me. Yeah. But you won a few, uh, are they battle royales that you have there? Is that what it's called? Yeah, something like that. I can't remember what they called it when you actually actually won. Um, They were quite amusing wins, actually. They were almost accidental. One, I spent the entire round just sitting in a bush with a silenced (laughs) pistol and then realized it was just me and one other yeah, You're I was camping. <laughs> I'm proud of it. And um, well, the storm happened to to gather in around me, and suddenly it was me and one other guy, and I took him out. <laughs> it was it was amusing. I probably still got my, the footage uh, somewhere because I grabbed it off my PS4. <laughs> my ten year old nephew plays Fortnite. Do you still feel proud about possibly beating him? No, I doubt I would have beat him. <laughs> All the 10-year-olds beat me, Neil. And then they sh- shout. I, I remember getting shouted at down the microphone because somebody entered my squad and then said, oh, no, you're wearing a default skin. You must be rubbish. And off he ran. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I always oh, find yeah. that odd now because, you know, we are we are older gamers. We have to accept that. And we may be uh, wanting to take part in these big online games where you are pitched against a seven-year-old. Um, and yes. um, in many cases, absolutely destroyed by a seven-year-old, and um, it can be quite disheartening. <laughs> Usually destroyed. By Usually a destroyed. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and there was a just getting back onto the addictiveness thread. There was um, a period where addictive became a dirty word. I think you know our magazines used to rate addictiveness as a positive thing. A hundred percent addictiveness in the ratings was was a perfect score. But that became slightly negative over time, uh, and a game could then be enthralling or captivating. But addictive seems to have too many negative connotations for them to really push it um, anymore. Um, not that that would put off the loot box designers of the world in in ways that you've explained, and that the, you you've explained it as a drug like nature in Fortnite. And I think that's so true, mm. uh, whether it's the visuals or the reward system that. Um, it sometimes is more closely aligned to what you'd find in a bookmaker's, you know, on their gambling systems than, than I personally think should be in games. Um, and that's when the addictiveness uh, becomes a, a very negative thing, I think. I, I don't know. Call me old-fashioned, though. You know, I think at its heart of it, a game should be addictive, not because of the loot boxes and those mechanics, but just the gameplay. It should be an addictive thing, right? Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Neil. I think... Um... You know, you want something to draw you back to the game. Otherwise, what's the point? But I Mm. think, you know, going back to the story in question, when the game literally merges real life and real people with game objectives, then I think it can cross a line as well there. Um, It's not the fault of the developer, though, but it's definitely a consideration for the individual. Yeah, yeah. Um, Speaking of addictive games, have you been playing Wordle? No, I'm so confused. What's going on? (laughs) Pretty much everyone who's listening will know what Wordle is. There was some big news this morning, actually, that it's just a basic five-letter word game where a really nice mechanic that's built into it is that you can only play it once a day. Once you've done it, a timer ticks down and you can't play it again until tomorrow. So that's that's actually a really positive thing, I think. It's an addictive game, keeps you wanting more, but you can only come back to it tomorrow. So you spend a a couple of minutes each morning doing your Wordle over breakfast and that's it. Whether it will stay that way, I don't know, because it was reported this morning that the New York Times, I think it was, 
has bought Wordle for a seven-figure sum from this guy who just stuck it on his website, no advertising, no registration needed. You just pop there and play the game. Uh, he's got seven figures in his pocket now. Um, and uh, good on him, I say. Good on him for being rewarded for just making something free for anyone to play without plastering it with adverts and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, who knows where Wordle will go next. Anyway, something that we can all agree on is that police officers should not be choosing Pokemon over a robbery in progress. Perhaps if smart devices were truly smart, uh, they'd know when you were at work and what your priorities should be. I'm sure it won't be long. <laughs> I have a confession, Neil. I don't understand why people are trying to get old devices hooked up to the internet. <laughs> um, how about how about you, Neil? Are any of your devices online, your old retro computers, are they online? Uh, well, I mean, yes, technically, yes. Some of them are online, but not really because I have a desire to put them online, just because they're picking up a gateway address from the DHCP server to get them on the local network because I like to sometimes FTP games um onto systems particularly where for example you've got a compact flash card or something like that inside the system and you don't want to have to unscrew it and take it apart to just bung one game on there so i like yeah. to have some of my retro systems on the network therefore they happen to have access to the gateway and be online as well unless i manually remove that setting um there are very very few times when i've gone onto the internet using them you know i mm. popped onto a browser on a system and gone yeah, it doesn't work, and I expected it not to work very well. But there you go. A 30-year-old system is online. Close that window. Um, that's about it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Um, I'm not a massive advocate for putting old systems online unless you've got a very specific yeah. reason. That's a good use case, actually, getting stuff on. I can see the day will come for my trusty A1200 over here for, um, you know, getting um, extra WHD load games on when I want them. That'll mm -hmm. be the easiest way to do it. But at the moment, I've resisted. Anyway, back to the story submitted by Clem Fandango. Uh, the latest is a Game Boy. Yep. Sebastian from YouTube channel and blog, which is called There Order Be has painstakingly created a Wi-Fi cartridge for the original Game Boy. And yes, it connects to the internet. And he even shows reading Wikipedia on the device's monochrome screen. Um, you may think I'm being offensive by calling this pointless, Neil. Um, but imagine my surprise when right at the start of his video, Sebastian himself says, and I quote, okay, seriously, this is probably one of the most useless things I've ever created. <laughs> I like this guy already. Um, the first video on the topic really is the technical details of his useless creation, uh, which is a cartridge, like I said, that uses the ESP32 and some witchcraft, I think, um, to connect to the worldwide whatever. And he details its shortcomings, like potentially shorting the entire device. Um, but actually, Neil, I've been catching up with the following videos that he's made, and he started to use this thing to do some pretty cool stuff, including streaming movies to the Game Boy and even streaming GTA V to it um, and actually playing the game on the Game Boy via his PS4. So the PS4 is doing the grunt work, but he's streaming both control and the, the visualization to the Game Boy. Still totally pointless activities, of course. I was waiting um, for that, yes. I mean, watching yeah. a movie on a Game Boy, it doesn't sound like a great experience. 
No, I, I dare say he's got a smart TV he could stream those movies to, but still. <laughs> um, but but it's, that is actually pretty amazing to see. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Neil? Should we be forcing these poor things online or leaving them in their period-correct off-grid bliss? Well, just expanding on what I was saying earlier about transferring games onto these devices, um, just this week I was watching a review uh, by um, Bob over on Retro RGB um, about a new a new NAS setup called Retro NAS, which is specifically designed for example, um, you can use it for your misters, so you can point your misters to the share and play games directly from the NAS, as well as other retro devices. Uh, I think you can do it with a um, PlayStation 2, um, obviously a, a slightly hacked PlayStation 2 with a different dashboard and thing on there. Um, so if you think about that, if you had a retro NAS or a similar device on your local network and your Wi-Fi Game Boy cartridge could look at that location and list the uh, games that are there, and you could just pick one and play it and easily update it. That would be quite nice. And then if you mm. take that one step further, imagine if that NAS was somewhere on the internet, maybe you had it at home. Well, then you could, you know, you could quickly and easily load your games. Um, there could be a situation where you've got your 1989 Game Boy uh, on a bus, tethered to your iPhone to get it online, oh. talking to your NAS back at home to load, you know, a ROM. That, that that's a a situation <laughs> that might happen. I don't see us getting to the point where there'll be a commercial aspect to it, whereby somebody is hosting and and you're paying for the the Netflix of ROM storage to load onto your Game Boy. Um, but it's it's not unrealistic to see how it could get there, and that could happen. So, um, yeah, not completely useless if you if you take it to the nth degree, you can see some uses for it. Um, and I should also point out that you're the man who was touting the delights of teletext to us just last week. So, um, you know, you can't really come here and, uh, and and tell us you don't see the the purpose of this. But come on, everyone, you should be using teletext, surely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's a fair point. Um, yeah. <laughs> one, but, one um, thing you... th there are some other things, actually, just thinking about it. Um, the Game yeah. Boy obviously had the link up cable, didn't it? um yes, yes, so can you can you substitute it for that could you wirelessly link up to another game boy no <laughs> no no okay. no multiplayer gaming on this device no <laughs> um but on sebastian's blog he does reference the work of andy west from youtube channel element 14 presents um and andy has created a wi-fi adapter for the link port on the side of the game boy um, but Sebastian's project is actually a Wi-Fi cartridge, so it literally goes in the cartridge slot, so right. it's not talking to that port at all. Um, I guess maybe a homebrew game could be developed to utilize that onboard Wi-Fi, but then you'd need a through port, I assume, to plug in the cartridge or an SD card reader or something. You've got to load the ROM somehow, and at the moment the cartridge slot is taken up with the Wi-Fi. Um, so he's just using this mm -hmm. thing to connect to the internet or stream from devices on his local network. So, yeah, I'm kind of on the fence on it, to be honest. I like the fact that none of my classic computers are connected to the interwebs. Um, even my Amigas have so far been spared that madness. But I have to say that seeing GTA V, pointless though it is, streaming to a monochrome Game Boy is pretty awesome. Pointless. But awesome. Awesome. <laughs> 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 Chris, will it run Doom used to be the age-old question that dogged Amiga fans. So many of us jumped ship when we saw what was coming out of the gates of hell on our PCs. And for many years, Amiga diehard fans wanted to prove that it was possible to run Doom. 
and not only was it proven possible with enough power thrown at it, some incredibly impressive Doom-like games emerged for stock 1200s uh, and indeed A500s, games like Dread, which we covered on the show sometimes back. Well, when you've done Doom, there's a natural next step, or at least there is for me, and that next step is Duke Nukem 3D. And there has been some drum banging this week about something called JF Duke 3D for the Amiga. It's not the first time we've seen it attempted, as we'll discuss, but Chris, are you a big Duke fan? Absolutely loved Duke 3D, Neil. Um, I have to be honest, how oh, can I admit this? I don't think I ever bought the full version. <laughs> it was one that I acquired. Um, but anyway, um, and it was the Atomic Edition. Um, but oh, I spent so many hours on it. And back in that period, I did have a legit version of Quake. And whilst Quake was awesome because, you know, of, of the full uh, 3D poly uh, texture mapped environments and and enemies um so it was it was leaps and bounds ahead in that respect duke just had the humor it had the storyline it had the action it had the fun it was it was just so good and i played that thing from beginning to end on the hardest setting neil but not the one that respawns everything um and i even spent many hours uh, making my own maps for it um mainly places yeah. that i worked but yeah absolutely loved it but isn't i mean talking about um duke uh, I assume this is where you're going, Duke on the Amiga. Hasn't that been done already? Isn't Ami Duke a thing? How is this different? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, just going back to the the injection of humor that you found made the game so good. I completely agree. You know, the build engine, it, was, it, it wasn't outdated because it did expand on that original Doom 2.5D style engine. Um, but Quake was proving that, you know, this full polygon and texture mapping was the way forward. But it carried on for years. You know, we had games like Redneck Rampage, which just shone with its humor. Um, and um, I can't remember when Rise of the Triad came out, but that was also a good one that was based on a, mm. on the same engine. So um, it carried on going for some years and it just went to prove that it wasn't all about the polygons. You know, it was about a good storyline and some humor as well. So uh, I completely agree with you on that. On Amijuke, yeah, uh, um, Nova Coda released um, Amijuke some years back. And that also, like this one, it, it supported vampires, the vampire add-on for your Amiga. It supported the SAGA mode, which was um, a specific uh, mode to the vampire to extend on the AGA. Um, so you could really push your vampire to the limit with that and see what, what would what it was capable of and um a quick search will turn up other examples so for example uh a search on youtube you'll see duke 3d running on amiga os4 on amiga one hardware i think it was back in 2012 you can run duke 3d through a mac emulator on your amiga something i've done myself if you've if you've got enough power obviously it's not a native port but you can do it and you can enjoy the game and uh, now there's this new one, which is based on something called JF Duke, which was a reworking of the game designed to make it easy to play Duke on modern Windows, Mac and uh, Linux machines. So now we've got an Amiga fork, an Amiga version of that project. So, um, so yeah, you're right, Chris. It's, it's not a world first. We have seen other versions of it before. Like those other versions, you're going to need some serious grunt, though. So are you ready for the specs, Chris? Your, oh, go on, then. Uh, your Amiga is going to need... A 68060 CPU oh. and a floating point unit to go with it. Um, you're going to need AGA or a real-time graphics card. You're going to need 16 meg of fast RAM. And, um, well, 
I think it's about 45 meg of hard disk space that you need, plus more if you want the music on there. Uh, it must rip some of the CD music. There was CD music. I think there certainly was on the Atomic Edition, wasn't there? Yeah, I can't yeah, remember was, now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just your average Amiga in 1996 when Duke came out, right? <laughs> well, Neil, I've only just got myself an A1200 with an 030 in it. Um, I've got 128 <laughs> meg of RAM, so I'm okay there. But you're telling me I need to upgrade already like it's 1996? <laughs> it would be cheaper to, well, jump to a period correct PC, dare I say. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about um, yeah, because you can. Um, the same goes, to be honest, in the ports for Doom and Quake. Uh, to me, they're PC games. So other than to prove a point, I'm really not sure of the obsession with porting these things to the Amiga. Yeah, you're totally right there. I think you hit the nail on the head. For the money it would have cost, you you could have got a good PC to play uh, Duke on uh, and games, probably games that needed a higher spec again. So I agree with you there. Um, I think that sometimes these projects are not a question of do i want it it's not like this thing is ever going to end up on the shelves as a commercial project you know it's always catering to a niche audience sometimes it's just nice to applaud a developer who, who wanted to take on the challenge and succeeded so um, i always yeah. like to see that in terms of performance on a vampire uh, this thing is silky smooth it's sitting at around 60 to 70 frames per second it's not one of those ports that you see on the Amiga that's just kind of struggling to pull itself along and say, look, I can do it too, even though I'm in a tiny window to get a, a playable frame rate. It's absolutely smooth. It's, silk, it's, it's smoother than I ever saw it on my PC back in the day, that's for sure. Hmm. Um, you can also see it running on a Pi Storm in an A500, which, again, runs very well indeed. Uh, it's quite mad seeing duke run on what looks like a stock a500 wedge with a pie hidden away inside <laughs> it that's quite a nice thing to see um also an interesting contrast between the pie storm and the vampire because they they're both perfectly capable of running it and there's a vast difference in the price between the two so um that's quite an interesting thing to see what i've not seen um a video of yet is this thing running on an actual vintage 060 amiga i'd really like to see that see uh, how right, it performs yeah um so i'm not seeing it on any banging on any actual real vintage hardware um so chris Ju doom we've seen that on the amiga duke what's the next game would you say from the pc hall of fame that you'd like to see on an amiga actually i think i've got a, a sensible answer to that question um other than one thing i do need to see on the amiga is a good port of outrun um but what i'd really like to see on the amiga on a stock a1200 is x-wing oh okay nice yeah so i mean we had wing commander did that not satisfy your needs enough does it need to be the star wars universe for you it does need just because it had mark <laughs> hamill in it neil uh it's still not star wars and you know what wing commander completely escaped me and i jumped over i was already on frontier and also first encounters which i think i was one of the very few fans of um but yeah x-wing i mean i think the amiga is more than capable but it was never ported across or x-wing versus tie fighter or any of those it would be interesting yeah, that would be interesting. And um, actually, Wing Commander, now I mention it, that was one of those games that was considered a PC game through and through. And we were never going to see that on the Amiga. Um, it took a mm. while for it, for us to get a port, but we did eventually get it. But um, it does it does still shine yeah. on the yeah, PC true. compared to the Amiga, I think. So, um, yeah, but the, the, there's only so far we can go um, if we're depending on the grunt of the CPU. So 
I'd probably like to see um, developers take on some of those games that are right at the threshold where we had both software and hardware rendering versions of games. So the most obvious for me, having recently seen it on the GBA in last week's show when we talked about it, um, is Tomb Raider. Can Open Lara be ported natively or is it too much even for a vampire or a pie storm? Uh, the original game, I think, wanted a Pentium 60 to run. Probably wanted a bit more than that to, for it to run super smoothly. But Pentium 60 is what it says on the box. So perhaps it's possible. I'm not sure. Maybe mm. someone in the comments will um, will shout at me because such a project exists. But I honestly haven't come across any attempts at Tomb Raider on the Amiga just yet. So uh, let us know if you have. But it also raises a question which you touched on um, as in the point of all this if a port needs the power of a vampire or a pie storm to run it, and if even the fastest vintage accelerators struggle to run it, have we crossed some kind of threshold here? Are we still Amiga gaming or is this something else? I'm not saying that I dislike seeing the boundaries pushed ever harder, but if these devices are accepted as the new normal Amigas, is there a risk that those Amiga users who like to stick to the original hardware might find themselves unable to run future releases? I hope not, because it's those games like Dread on a stock Amiga 500 that really teach us more about what might have been possible at the time. It's not just an imagined future where ever more powerful accelerators arrived for our systems. So um, I hope developers keep that in mind and continue to cater for, the, for us old school Amiga gamers who like to keep things stock. As always, though, it's an interesting time to be an Amigan. Okay, Neil, it's on to our community question of the week, uh, which is all about joysticks, basically. Which was your favourite and why? Which could you never get on with? And were there any that you loved but found to have below par build quality? Neil, do you want to kick off with the first answer? Mm. Well, we've had a lot of answers, so thank you, everyone, who uh, took part. We'll read the top three most uh, upvoted answers on our subreddit which is reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro if you want to participate in this or future questions of the week so pajaco 6502 tops our list he says i used my trusty conic speed king for years that's the one i've got here on the desk i only recently found out that this was released in the us as the epics 500 xj didn't know that myself i had plenty of other joysticks but the conics was king a close second would have been something only I seemed to have owned. I purchased a, a build-it-yourself joystick kit from either Maplin or Tandy. It had a light blue base and a red pistol grip with a single red fire button. It was identical to a sure-shot standard single-button joystick. I sadly no longer have it. And information is non-existent online. Did he imagine it? Can, can anyone else remember that? A, a Maplin or Tandy build-it-yourself joystick kit. Do you, do you remember seeing build-it-yourself joysticks? No, I remember disassembling my own joysticks, but never yeah. one that was intentionally uh, come as a kit form, no. Yeah, but anyway, the, the Conic Speed King, I think, will be a popular choice among many people. What's yeah. our next one, Chris? Right, so Dave uh, Velociraptor. Mine was the Zipstick. It's the first joystick I got that didn't have the little metal blister switches that always broke. It's always the first one that didn't try to look like something from a fighter cockpit. The Cheetah <laughs> 125 and the Amstrad y, uh, JY-2s can get in the bin. Oh. Mine never wore out. So going back to the Zipstick, mine never wore out. I kept it from my CPC through to my ST until I got a PC when it was then obsolete. 
I prefer my Mayflash F500. Mine has genuine Samoa parts for my multi-system because it's huge and sits flat. My monster joystick is great for my CPC. And my Arcade R is a modern take on the Competition Pro slash Sipstick, and I feel better quality. Um, I definitely echo his thoughts on the Zipstick. I have a soft spot for the Cheetah 125 because that's what I got with my Spectrum, but the Zipstick, I'm the same. I went through so many quick shots and quick joys and broke all those microswitch springs. The chi- the Zipstick was the only joystick I ended up with that I literally couldn't break. What do you think, Neil? Yeah, solid, solid stick. And uh, I've still got ones in the cave, which I've never had to perform any maintenance on other than cleaning them, uh, and they work perfectly fine. Um, uh, as well as the Competition Pro. I think that's that's on a par with the Zipstick there. And uh, Dave mentioned some modern sticks there, Munster Joystick. Everyone knows I love them. But also the Arcade R, which uh, I agree. It's uh, it's very much in the style of the Competition Pro. And the Zipstick uh, is injection molded, so it's got a nice finish to it. And uh, definitely, definitely a joystick worth looking at. If um, if you're considering getting an old stick, but you're just you're a bit worried about it might be a bit flaky, it might be a bit old. Well, here's, here's a new one that does really live up to the reputation of those old sticks. So definitely worth checking out. Mayflash F500. I haven't tried that one myself. I'll have to look that one up. Um, but Dave doesn't share our love of the fighter stick style with the... Um, uh, was it? Is that what he said? He didn't like the ones that look like yeah. fighter sticks. Yeah, he did. Dave. He's probably not up to playing flight sims. That's all no, I can say. Neil, probably, doesn't, probably doesn't too complicated. Skills. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be Maverick. You be Goose, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I was inverted. So Richard Cheers <laughs> says, um, "My favorite joystick just proves how much." image can win over sensibilities you see i'd love to say on reflection that it was the zipstick but no whilst uh, it is now my favorite vintage joystick back in the day i loved the quick shot 2 turbo um, i think that's another one we've got on the desk here not the turbo i think the turbo was red wasn't it was the turbo the red one yes the, the red base that yeah, like and, a turbo you just yeah oh he goes on to say actually he says why because it looked so cool that red base the blister inducing fighter jet influenced grip it just set my imagination flowing i was the pilot flying that cutting edge jet at supersonic speeds it never occurred to me that perhaps cutting edge jet technology might have actually produced something a tad more comfortable in reality <laughs> our <laughs> naivety and suspension of disbelief that only a child possesses very nice. true. Um, yeah, I, I had a Quick Shot 2 Turbo. I mean, I'll be honest, I had pretty much every joystick going under the sun that cost less than £10 <laughs> or less than £12, uh, and I broke it. Um, if I'd had some more money and spent it wisely, I would have probably gone for the joystick that a lot of people have mentioned in the comments, which is the TAC 2. There's a lot of love for mm. the TAC 2. Have you ever used that one? I haven't, but I have seen it at the Perth user group meets, and it just looks like a solid thing. Just the build quality is just yeah better than anything yeah. i certainly ever had growing up yeah good memories um i'm surprised we didn't see uh much talk of joy pads in there um because they just, they just didn't work out for me on on computers it had to be a joystick and not a joy pad um yeah in, until we started to get sticks on joy pad perhaps uh, i'm still not i'm still not totally on board with joy pads on pcs and amigas but, um <laughs> it's a conversation for another day and so our community question of the week for this week is, it's all about game addiction. Is there a game from back in the day that you were completely obsessed with? Did you, like Chris, have to go cold turkey? 
Tell us your stories. Let us know how it affected your life, your friends, your family. Did you lock yourself away like a hermit, never to be seen for weeks on end? What did you have to do to break the cycle? Let us know all about it by going over to reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. And also you can go there to submit your news stories to appear on the show. The most popular news stories will be considered for the show. And uh, the more news you submit, the more we've got to talk about. So please head over to the subreddit. As always, thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil Thomas from RMC The Cave and Chris Winter from 005 Agima. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.